Hello, this is Tommy Franks. Welcome to the Four Star Leadership Podcast, product of the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute and Museum. We're here to get a view into the lives of the legacy makers, the movers and the shakers of today. Offer insights from the full spectrum of the leadership community. We'll talk to former four-star students and explore their leadership development path. We'll work to find out what they are about today and learn from the opportunities they've made for themselves in this world. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome you to this podcast. Remember, leaders are not born, they're developed. Welcome to a new season of the Core Principles of Leadership with General Tommy Franks podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jill Green, and it is exciting to start off 2024 with our fourth season with Coach Sherry Cole, the Hall of Fame women's basketball coach from the University of Oklahoma. Coach Cole never veered far from her roots of small town Oklahoma, growing up just 30 minutes on the right side of the Red River in the one stoplight town of Hilton. She became the first All-State basketball player from her small town and landed a scholarship to play at Oklahoma Christian University. After college, she began her high school coaching career, and after winning a couple of state championships, at the young age of 31, with no collegiate experience under her belt, she became as she writes, the proverbial coaching poster child when she was named the head coach at the University of Oklahoma. During her 25-year career at Oklahoma, she won multiple Big 12 championships, had 19 straight NCAA tournament appearances, and fought her way into three Final Fours. She coached four All-Americans, 14 WNBA draft selections, and was inspired by the fight and drive of each of her players that stepped on the court with her. The Oklahoma sideline was not the only coaching opportunity that Coach Cole earned. She also had the opportunity to participate in USA Basketball as an assistant coach in 2001 and as the head coach in the 2013 World University Games where her squad defeated Russia on their home floor to bring home the gold. After retiring, Coach Cole focused with intention on several other callings in her life, one being writing, and published Roots to Rise, a collection of essays about her people and the impact they had on the people around them. Before we get started with our episode with Coach Cole, we'll have a word from one of our major sponsors, REI Oklahoma. REI Oklahoma is proud to be part of the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute and Museum in the production and distribution of these podcasts designed to inspire leaders and difference makers. At REI Oklahoma, we have been working with small business leaders, entrepreneurs, and people who are driven to succeed for years. Highly motivated people working to own their own businesses, live in their own homes, and make the world a better place since its beginning. REI Oklahoma has continued to identify hurdles and deliver holistic solutions to create job growth and help neighborhoods 
thrive in both rural and urban communities. REI Oklahoma looks forward to visiting with you about helping your business and community grow. Visiting reiok.org or call 1-800-658-2823 to start the conversation. The Labarge family is a fourth-generation Oklahoma family. That may not sound like a long time, but our grandfathers were born here, within the Comanche Nation, before the land run. We are the proudest sponsor of the Tommy Franks Four-Star Leadership Podcast. We hope listeners will heed the words of these distinguished men and women who have served our country at the highest levels and across all walks of life. Was coaching always something, was that always a goal of yours growing up? I don't know that it was so much a goal of mine as um, the only way I could see my life. I, I just thought um, from the time I can can remember earliest, I will be a teacher and a coach. That's what I thought. Uh, the most influential people in my life were my teachers and my coaches outside of my immediate family. And I just thought that was the coolest way to make a life. And so when I was about in the fifth grade, um, I, I started thinking about it. I remember, you know, we used to order um, books out of the Scholastic Book Fair, those little magazines that you could order books out of. And all my friends were ordering mysteries and puzzle books and all kinds of stuff. And I ordered, they call me coach by John Wooden. I, I did in the fifth grade. And oh, I ordered that fine. book, I still have it on the shelf. <laughs> and um, that was just sort of a, you know, foreshadowing of this is what it's going to be like. <laughs> that's your, that's your destiny. So um, growing up, what did a leader look like to you? Well, I, you know, I think of uh, various leaders and various aspects of my life, leaders in the classroom, uh, leaders on the basketball court, leaders at my church, um, leaders in the community. They were, they were in a variety of forms and uh, took on a lot of different characteristics. But I think um, chief among them would be confidence. There was a level of competence that was radiated through how leaders walked and talked and carried themselves and that made you want to gravitate toward them. And so that I think confidence would be one thing. Also, uh, confidence anchored in humility. I, I can't think of a single leader from the time I ever started paying attention to it that wasn't constantly learning while they were leading. And that was a very, um, uh, um, it was a force that was magnifying and it, and it drew me toward it. Um, uh, this insatiable curiosity to get better, to do better, to learn more, to see more, to be able to do more. Um, and, and I think strong communicators, that would be the third part of it. Mm -hmm. So uh, confidence, um, uh, curiosity grounded in humility, and then um, uh, the ability to communicate a, a vision or specific information or simply relate in a way that made you feel like you could ask questions or reveal things or connect. So I think those those might be the big three. So um, when you came into coaching and what of those characteristics did you try to mirror when you were out coaching? And Oh, I think probably tried to mirror them all. I think what we do when we begin anything is we, whether we're consciously or subconsciously, we're, we're, we're being the way we were treated. So mm -hmm. we teach the way we were taught. We coach the way we were coached. We parent the way we were parented. That's just sort of a, a natural inclination. And then after you do it for a bit, 
you try on this voice and that voice and you mix these things together and it's kind of like making vegetable soup at the end it ultimately comes out to be this one thing that is you and i remember early on in my coaching that i was i was very much dan hayes he had been a mentor of mine at oklahoma christian he was the men's basketball coach there and and i really learned how to coach the 5 on 5 game from dan hayes from a technical standpoint and i was very much him and then my first head coaching job was at Norman high school and Tony Robinson was the boys coach and, and he was very intense. And, um, uh, I remember I, I was a lot like him and, and tried to be a lot like him. And then through the years, uh, those things sort of morphed into my way of doing that. Um, but I think our tendency is to take, hopefully we're intentional enough and, uh, uh, being aware enough that we can pick the things that we really love and that fit us and, we become a conglomeration of all those who have impacted us. Yeah. So it's funny that you talk about you had to learn how to coach five on five. So I grew up in Oklahoma too, and I was one of the last few classes that actually played six on six. And nowadays people have no idea what that even is. So um, <laughs> back in the day, I couldn't imagine having to run the full court, the entire game that just blew my mind. But um at my last job, I worked at a college. And so I helped at the score table a lot. And the um, reps would come over and they'd be like, you know what you're doing? We're, are we all good? We're on the same page. And I'm like, yeah, I played six on six. I know what's going on. <laughs> and they, I mean, their eyes, they would just be like, oh my gosh, what have we gotten ourselves into? But uh, um, that's, I was on the guard side. So I never... I never knew how to shoot the ball. That wasn't part of my job that, you know, you just got the ball right. across the line. Right. And, so. and we loved it. Yes. Because we knew it's what I played in high school uh -huh. and I think it's the greatest game in all of the world until I played five on five. Yeah. And then I never wanted to play six on six again, but when it's all, you know, it's what you love. Yeah, and you love it. We're so passionate about it. And there were so many uh, really positive things about six on six basketball for girls are we were also fundamentally sound because we spent so much time on fundamentals mm -hmm. dribbling passing and catching and there was such camaraderie and such inclusion and and a high level of skill it was it was a great game it was uh, like it was, I said yeah. until I found out how to play another one <laughs> <laughs> so um when every when when you would bring recruits into Norman you know everyone had the same goal of winning but everyone had their own way of thinking of how to do that. So how, as a coach, did you get everyone on the same page? Well, there's no easy answer to that question because every single year was different. Every collection of young women was different. Um, as the game changed, the game became different. As society morphed, that became different. Uh, technology infused itself into the situation that made things different. But when you take all those complexities and kind of shove them to the side, there are a few things that remain true regardless of all those complex changes. And that is that the whole has to be greater than the sum of the parts. And the way you get there is by making every individual understand the necessity of their role, their behavior, their presence, um, the lack thereof, of either of those things, um, the commitment level, that that piece of it that says what I do is integral. Uh, I think that's where it begins. And how you get to that spot 
uh, is different all the time. Uh, but I think it's by painting a really clear picture of what uh, uh, the team aspires to do. And, and maybe even more importantly for me, it was what our team aspires to be. If we are what we aspire to be, then we will do what we aspire to do and maybe more so. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we're shooting at that thing, instead of becoming who we can be, it's going to get really hard to, to reach those goals. So it was, it was painting a very clear picture that involved um, uh, a great amount of focus on language. Uh, I, I think, you know, we talk a lot about mission statements and purpose statements and core values and all those things are very, very important. But I think where we miss the mark sometimes is making the assumption that you and I have the same definition of the word integrity. We may be really close, but we may not be close at all. And even if we're really close, we may not be really clear. And so we went to, we took bold steps to ensure that uh, our group agreed upon the language that we would use. In other words, uh, what does gratitude look like? We want to be thankful. We want to be, to, to be grateful for what happens, but what does that look like in action? And we would define what, what are the hands and feet of that? feet of that. That means if visitors are watching us practice, as soon as practice is over, we'll all go shake their hand, look them in the eye, thank them for coming. That means when we get on and off of a bus, we tell the bus driver, thank you so much for driving us today. We appreciate you it, it, on a plane, all of those things. So we went through those, those ways that gratitude manifested itself. And we did that with all of our core values, those words that, that define the environment in which we would work and live and behave. And so I think clarity of language is a really, really big part of that. And then, of course, there are so many other things I could talk about within the confines of this question, like um, uh, catching people doing things right. I, I just think the way to uh, create the type of behavior, uh, agreed upon behavior from a group, because it is hard. You know, we we talk sometimes about oh, we all got to be selfless. Well, OK. Yes, we all want to be selfless, but wanting to be and actually being on a daily basis, yeah. Yeah. two yeah. different things. Yeah. So we would, you know, uh, reward reward people for um, the behavior that you want to see again. And so we would, uh, we had a, a what we called a moment wall where we would um, catch people embodying the behaviors, the core values of our program, maybe picking up trash, maybe a player stay after practice and was picking up uh, cups on the side of the court snap a picture of that, put it on the on the uh, moment wall, along with the core value that it coincided with. And we would just continually try to um, find tangible ways to reward that behavior that we wanted to see again. And, and that would drive, you know, that underlying um, desire to live in alignment with the way we had decided to mm -hmm. live and behave. So when most recruits that would come into um, to play in OU, I mean, when they came from their schools, they're the best of the best. Um, you know, many of them were probably state champions and, you know, some All-Americans and, you know, All-Staters. But when you get to that level, you come up against, you know, the Connecticut's and the Tennessee's and the Baylor's. And, and how did you handle and how did your players handle, you know, just being a regular fish? in, you know, in the ocean instead of, you know, the, the alpha in the big pond? Well, every player that you sign at a place like the University of Oklahoma was clearly the best player on their team. Yes. That, that was almost a given. Um, in many instances, the best player that a particular school had ever seen. Mm -hmm. In many instances, 
the best player in the state, the Gatorade player of the year in the state. And so the accolades would just stack up on top of one another. I would always ask, uh, ask our incoming players. Uh, I would remind them that you got to be able to handle and think through before you make a commitment to come here. The fact that on your worst day, you were almost always the best player in your gym. Mm-hmm. On your best day, you may never be the best player in our gym. That's a really significant difference. And you have to be able to play that scenario over in your mind and say, could I be okay with that? It doesn't mean that you're not aspirational. It doesn't mean that you're not going to fight for more playing time. It doesn't mean that you don't want to be an Mm -hmm. All-American. None of that stuff is canceled out, but you have to be able to look at that and consider that as a possibility because the talent level is so great that one player is not going to be the best player in the gym every day because she's going to have a bad day. And when she has a bad day, that player who's just a breath below her is going to be better than her that day. And so that that um, external sliding scale that unfortunately we've become so dependent upon, uh, if that is what's going to control your happiness meter, your fulfillment gauge, then you're going to struggle here. And I would use that as an inroad conversation to the fact that we want this to be about an experience where you compete with you every single day. And you don't compete to the, with the person on your right or the person on your left. Ultimately, you're competing with you. Are you better today than you were yesterday? And if we can get to that, we'll all be the best version of ourselves. And again, an easy thing to talk about, but a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, that, that's what we try to tell our students, because many, I mean, they're they're the leaders of their school. They're the, you know, they're the the valedictorians. They're, you know, they're. They're the basketball um, captains, the the student council. And we explain to them, you know, when you go to college, you have to focus on being the best you. And sometimes the best you is someone that is, you know, helping out. It's someone that's playing an integral part of the team, but maybe not, you know, leading the team. And um, just you have to focus on being the best you and not worry about what someone else is doing. So I think that's hard sometimes with the pressure. Really hard. There's, and you have, you have absolutely no control though over all those other things. And that's what you realize when the talent level is so great at a major college program, there are so many things that you can't control. You can't control the other guys. You can't control the officials. You can't control the weather when you travel you, you can't control whether or not you get injured or whether or not a teammate gets injured or all those things. And if your happiness meter or your fulfillment gauge is based upon all of those things that you can't control, you're going to be miserable and you're going to have a heightened level of anxiety and tension that's going to keep you from being your best. So instead of all that outward external comparison, let's really focus on individual improvement being better tomorrow than you are today and if everybody does that and the old saying as the water rises so do the boats that will happen Mm -hmm. so um i read your book this week and um there was some really amazing stories in there um and I, i loved how you wrote it it was just kind of short stories about very important people that played integral roles in your um life and um 
I smiled when I read that you had recruited a, a player from Seward um, Community College because Coach Latell, um, my dad was actually his middle school coach. And, oh my goodness, six and, degrees separation. Yes, so yeah. in Kansas. And so um, when my dad um, was in the hospital before he passed away, he um, sent a message and a basketball signed by all the OSU um, girls mm -hmm. and the coaches. And he said that, you know, I'm a coach today because the way you were a coach to me. So um, that just shows what, you know, special, um, you know, what role coaches play in people's lives. So um, that basketball sits in my office now. So um, that's the only orange that's allowed in there. But uh, <laughs> I was going to say, but you know, I was going to, yeah, let you know, back. we <laughs> Jill is a, a, a wonderful human and a uh, fantastic basketball coach. So it does not surprise me that he did that. And that tells me a bit about your dad too. He must've been pretty special in his own yeah, right. He was, he was a, he was a great coach. Um, he stopped coaching before I got there, but I always, he, um, had, he always gave me, he called it a tip of the game, um, before every game. And, um, when I got home, I would know by the look on his face, whether I had listened to his tip of the game. So, um, he was one of those coaches that could just give you the look and you knew what you were supposed to be doing. So, um, but so, in your book, you talked about, you know, you could tell that every one of your players, they became family. So um, when you're building great teams, how important is it to get to know those team members off the court? I, I, it's impossible to lead people that you don't know. You, you, you have to know what matters to them. You have to know who they are. Uh, the best to the best of your ability, what they're triggered by, uh, what inspires them, um, how they learn best, um, what form of communication uh, reaches them in the most efficient way. Um, you know, I, I used to say that uh, I treated, I did my best to treat my players fairly, but that did not necessarily mean equal. They there were um, that ways I would talk to one kid would not be a way I would talk to another kid because. Mm -hmm. of they were individually, how they had been raised, what their family was like. Um, coaching a, a, a child with no siblings is quite different than coaching one who had four brothers. And so you just uh, need all the information you can get. And I think that's that's probably one of the most important things. You know, I'm asked often if 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 you're giving advice to a young coach who's taking a job for the first time, what would your per first piece of advice be? to get to know your players, like go on home visits, like go see them in their homes, mm -hmm. meet their family, get to know who they are and what they're made of and what their expectations are. And then don't ever shy away from that piece of personal development, personal growth that is necessary for each member of your team, because they're not going to be the same person that they are the day you meet them in four years. Right. And if you're in a place of business in six years or eight years, we are constantly changing and becoming and um, striving. And so as leaders, it's our job not only to know who our people are, but who they want to be and to help them move in that direction. And that takes an inordinate amount of emotional energy. I, I would say that of all the things that gets overlooked when you're jumping into some leadership role, it's the vast amount of um, 
emotional space that you need to have and maintain for the people you're responsible for leading, which means ultimately that you can't run yourself ragged and never take care of yourself and not fill yourself up because you have to have that for the people that you're responsible for. So building in time to make sure that you work out or you read or you pray, you meditate, all those things that make you whole because that's a big chunk of your job as a leader mm-hmm. is to provide that space and accessibility to those people that you're charged with leading. Yeah. So um, I looked up last night and when um, the uh, season before you took over at OU, I think that it said that they were like 12 and 15 um, and there were only two players that were not from the state of Oklahoma. So it was not a place that, you know, big time recruits considered coming, you know, that, that wasn't, something that, you know, Oklahoma women's basketball just wasn't, you know, the ideal place to come. So how did you create buy-in so quickly and get it turned around so fast? Well, one of the first things that I think is super important to note is that uh, as an institution, um, the University of Oklahoma had a lot to offer. Uh, so it, it, there were, it was this thing that was just a secret, you know, in the world yeah. of women's basketball. And so it was just our job to um, alert people to the fact of, of what the institution offered. And, you know, you only need to look men's basketball, baseball, uh, football, uh, you know, at the time, others um, that were being so incredibly successful to know that it could happen for women's basketball, too. But early on in the process, we couldn't sign people um, from nearby because they were too well accustomed with the past. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we would go talk to really talented players and they'd say, oh, I think you're going to get it turned around, but I only have four years and I just don't know if it can happen that fast. So I can't come. So we realized real quickly um, we had to go out a ways and we got really lucky. Uh, if I'm just going to tell the truth, we got really lucky. I mean, there were some God winks for without a doubt. Uh, my first signee was a a five eleven center from Slayton, Texas, who was available in the month of April. No great players ever available in April for the following fall, and she had wanted to go to Lubbock uh, to Texas Tech and didn't get an opportunity to sign late and was left holding the bag. And a friend of a friend of a friend told me, and we long story that I share in the book actually. Um, ended up signing Felicia Whaley. And I thought she'd be a really good player because she had this, this look in her eye, like she would do whatever you asked her to do. She was inordinately respectful, uh, kind, um, the highest possible manners, just a, a good soul. And you could feel every bit of it. She's a good soul and a good high school basketball player. I don't know that I thought she would be a great college player, thought she could be good, but I didn't know she could be great. She turned out to be one of the best players I ever coached in 25 years. She was amazing. That was a bit of a God thing. And once Felicia got here, we literally did the old herbal essence commercial, told two friends and they told two friends and so on and so on. And we would say, we went to Brockville, Ontario, Canada and found Stacy Dales and said, Stacy, you're going to want to play with Felicia Whaley. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of person that you want to hitch your wagon to because you can do special things. And then we stuck those two together and said, Kate and Hill, you're going to want to play with Felicia Whaley and Stacey Dales. And then we hooked those guys together and just sort of built the train that way. 
uh, connecting really good humans with similar aspirations from very diverse backgrounds, uh, very diverse experiences, a wide range of skill sets, but a commonality that was, we're going to play hard, we're going to play for each other, we're going to go to class, uh, our education is going to be important to us, how we represent this university is important to us. The commonalities and what I call those really anchor traits were there. The diversity was in all the other things, and it made for a great mix. And then, you know, what happens is what happens in any entity. When you start doing something really well, then other people start paying attention, and it's not a secret anymore, and suddenly you can attract people from all over. And I, I've been asked what was the, um, the biggest difference in recruiting after we went to our first Final Four in 2002, and it was the fact that anybody would take our phone call. Uh, before that, not every great player would even, you could even talk to them. They, you know, they just didn't even really know who you were. Yeah. But after you play for the national championship in 2002, now every call gets answered, which complicated recruiting, if I'm being quite honest, because yeah. now instead of X number of access points, you have all the access points you could ever dream of. And so you have to get really serious about how you decide which ones to follow up on and which one's not and it becomes a whole other creature over here but um that was it it just started one person at a time one quality human being at a time and then selling her to the next and we just created this train created a great train so <laughs> thank you hello this is dr jill green with the general tommy franks leadership institute and museum i would like to tell you about one of our partner sponsors justin krieger he has worked as an independent insurance agent at Krieger Insurance Agency in his hometown of Hobart, Oklahoma since 1999. Justin is honored to help with our annual Celebration of Freedom event and has served on the board of directors for the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute and Museum for many years. He is a fifth generation farmer and rancher in Kiowa County where cattle, crops, and even insurance is sold with a handshake. Give him a call at 580-726-3076 or stop by the office and speak with Justin, Denise Reeves, or Wendy Block about your insurance needs. Krieger Insurance is thankful for their loyal customers and friends who have supported them through the years and look forward to earning your business as well. Justin feels honored to live in such a great country and he is proud to be a sponsor of the Core Principles of Leadership podcast. Please enjoy the rest of this podcast experience brought to you by your friends at Krieger Insurance Agency. General Franks, he always talks and says that um, when we're developing leaders at our institute, we're, we're developing leaders who can disagree without being disagreeable. That's what he says is, is wrong with our country right now is no one listens to either anybody and you're either right or you're wrong. No one understands that you can just disagree and, you know, still get along. So as a girls coach for, you know, over 30 years, I'm sure you witnessed, you know, your share of disagreements between teammates and, you know, even coaches and teammates. And how did you as a coach help teammates handle those situations? Well, um, Civil discourse was a, a big part of what we did. We talked about it from day one, that um, the only way you can really grow 
is to have a conversation with somebody who knows something that you don't or sees something in a way that you don't see it. There's there's nothing to be gained by a bunch of like minds sitting around having a conversation with one another. And so we valued that and talked a lot about that. Um, And I think that most disagreements in team settings, in uh, uh, even in in corporate team settings where people are trying to do something together, the, the disagreements typically don't emanate from a place of uh, um, ill will or um, uh, absolutely just trying to be defiant about something. They typically emanate from lack of clarity. People just aren't able to say or uh, explain, uh, show, uh, behave in such a way that what they're trying to communicate is clear. And so it's it's almost always crossed signals and shades of nuance that aren't clarified and assumptions. We we would keep uh, Don Miguel Ruiz's four agreements on the wall in our locker room. Don't take things personally. Uh, that's a big deal. Don't make assumptions. That's a big deal. Always try your best. Be uh, impeccable with your word. It was kind of like the be impeccable with your word and the always try your best we're way easier than those two in the middle. Don't make assumptions and don't take things personally. Oh, those are so hard. So hard. <laughs> and it seems like if you really could layer by layer unpack any sort of disagreement or impasse, you could always get it back to one of those two things. Somebody had either made an assumption or taken something personally that was not intended that way. And we tried really hard to... Um, live by that and unpack our disagreements so that we could get to those things where we could unite and move forward in the way that we wanted to together. It, it, it's not realistic to think that you're not going to have them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not uh, wise to act like they're not there when they are. Um, the best way to approach it is to say, we're going to get crossways. We're going to, signals are going to get all mixed up. What are we going to do about it when they do? How are we going to resolve it so that we can move forward? And uh, I typically found that the greatest growth our groups ever enjoyed was on the other side of an impasse. When things got ugly and things got messed up and we could unravel it all, we were 10 times stronger than we would have been had that never happened. So we always looked at them as opportunities to catapult even further toward the direction we wanted to go. And you've talked about this a lot, you know, and one of the main aspects of coaching is knowing how to communicate. So in in doing it effectively, is that was that something that came natural to you or or is that something that you really had to work on? I think it's both. I think um, communicating uh, verbally is a strength that came from reading so much. Uh, I think that uh, having a command of the English language is imperative for being able to lead, especially large groups of people. Um, but I think communication is so much more than the words that you use. It's um, it's the time that you spend. It's the tone of voice. It's the body language. There are so many different ways to communicate. And uh, while my verbal strength, um, I think, came pretty naturally I've worked hard to develop some of the others. Uh, one thing that I, I, body language is a really big deal with our team. And um, I remember one season 
making a, a clip of myself on the sideline and showing it in practice. You know, they come in after a game and like, and we lost that game and they're expecting to see their turnovers and when they didn't block out and, you know, the pass they threw out of bounds. And uh, it was a, a collection of clips of, of myself that I'd had my video coordinator string together of just really negative body language. And I was like, I, you know, I, we preach this all the time. I don't know how I could expect you uh, to have the right kind of body language. Look at mine. And, you know, I, and I'm, I'm a very emotional demonstrative person. And uh, when I looked at the film through that lens, I was mortified at my own body language. And so you know, I use that to tell them we're all a work in progress. None of us have got this deal cornered. Um, we have to pay attention to it and we're communicating constantly. And the messages I was sending them were not the ones I wanted to send them with my brain, but they were the messages I was sending them with them with my body. And so I think there are lots and lots of ways to communicate. And I don't think we ever arrive. That is an ongoing, constant uh point of study, I think, for what's working, what's not working. Is it resonating? Is it not? How can I get their attention? How can I keep their attention? How can I drive this point home? Those are just constantly recurring themes that leaders have to entertain. Yeah. So, um, so when you, you, we talked about you building the culture at, um, for the women's basketball at OU. And so, and it, it, it did, it happened fairly quickly. Um, so, was it harder to build a winning culture or maintain the winning culture? I wish I had a dollar for every time I've been asked that one. <laughs> I haven't figured out the right answer yet. They're both really, really hard um, for a number of different reasons. I think the building it in the first place is arduous. It's, it's to me, it's like... Um, it's like training for a marathon. You just, it's hard. You know, you have to do it and it's hard, but you have to do it. And then the maintaining of it is sort of like, um, there's not a, there's not a hill to climb. And so this is weird. I, I, I know how to train to climb this hill, but okay, now there's not a hill to climb. So mm -hmm. this is weird. what exactly is to be done. And of course, you, you, you know, all the, all the things that we read and hear are true that you don't rest on what you've done. You don't get lackadaisical. Your work ethic doesn't change, but there is a shift in the things that you need to do to be successful. Um, that old saying that what got you here won't get you there is absolutely true. You don't just go back to the bottom of the hill and start digging again because it's a different kind of mountain now. And so you, it's almost as if um, that one's riddle laced. And when you're trying to build a thing for the first time, there's, there's sort of a follow these directions kind of thing. And so I would lean toward it's harder because it's not as clear um, on, on how to maintain it. The problems, the complexities, the challenges are just as great but they are very different. And um, it's a, an elite space when you, you know, like people who've won a national championship. Uh, Nick Saban just retires yesterday as we're having this, you know, we're recording the Zoom today. And uh, the number of people that he could look to to see how to get better from 2021 to 2022, there's like 
Who, who's he going to look to? Yeah, who's yeah. done that? You know, at that level. And so it's a little bit of a mystery. And, and yet, um, you know, the ones that are, are able to sustain that success year after year after year are uh, obviously skilled in a, a great number of ways. Um, chief among them, maybe their ingenuity, their ability to um, maybe not reinvent, but recreate themselves and their program continually. Because mm-hmm. I think that's necessary for freshness. Yeah. So when we um, we talk to our students, um, we don't we try not to ever use the word failure. Everyone has failures. There's I mean, that's just how life is. So we try to refer to them as pivots. So um, pivots can be, you know, really pivotal moments in our lives. Um, so can you think back on a moment that was really a pivoting point in your life? Oh, um, there've been many, many pivots. Um, might make you dizzy if I told you all of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, when this is an interesting story, I don't know if I've, if I've actually ever even told on a public platform before, but, um, my first job, uh, was teaching and coaching at high school level. I was assistant coach. And I had just played five on five and went back and coaching a six on six team. And um, I, I, my, I really wasn't trained to coach six on six. I had played it, but I'd never coached it. And mm-hmm. as I said, I'd learned how to coach through college, through watching the men's coach there, uh, coach and teach five on five. And we had a couple of scrimmages and I was an assistant coach for the high school team. And, and I, he had given me, the head coach had given me responsibility of the defense. And I was an offensive player when I played six on six and then, you know, played five on five different game. And, and I wasn't great at trying to figure out how to play three on three defense and get our guys to do what we wanted. And uh, he actually brought a former assistant coach that was doing a different sport at the time back in to coach with us, which was another way of saying, you can't get this done. You're going to coach this off. You're going to bring this guy in to do the JV. And it was, um, it, it was a moment that I will I will never forget. It didn't change my pay status, um, but it changed my role. And it was the moment at which I had to decide if I really knew what I was doing or not, mm-hmm. if I really wanted to do what I thought I wanted to do or not. And it was a soul-searching moment. I had never, to borrow the word that you don't use, failed really in a, in a big way. Um, before that moment, that was my first job outside of, you know, after college. Yeah. And, um, I remember, uh, I took about a week and on my, uh, uh, lunch break, which uh, if you're a teacher is about 25 minutes, <laughs> uh, I would go out and jog around the track. And it took me about a week of just doing that by myself, coming to terms with all this. And then I went in and asked the head coach, if, uh, if I could coach the sophomore team and, um, and he said, why would you want to do that? And I said, I, I just want to, I want to learn how to be a coach. I want to coach the sophomore team. And so I took the sophomores and took complete responsibility for them and built practice plans and drove them to their games. And we were awful and they learned and they got better. And I learned, and it was perhaps the most formative, um, event in my coaching career. Um, because I, I had to sort of eat 
humble pie. And then I had to decide if I was going to go in a corner and be mad at, you know, whoever the world, um, or if I was going to go hide in the closet and say, I, this is not really what I want to do. And I took about a week of jogging around the track and said, no, I want to get better at this. And so ask for additional responsibility and you know, nobody comes to sophomore games. Who cares? Nobody cared except the parents or the sophomore players. But it wasn't about that. It was about me seeing if I could figure out how to design a practice and coach kids. And I learned far more from that year than I ever would have had I just been the varsity assistant coach. So um, that's a major one that um, played a huge role in uh, the kind of coach I became. It's a great story. So um, you've seen all kinds of leaders on the basketball court players. And so to you, what separates the great leaders from the good leaders? Um, that is an excellent question. And I don't know that it can fit in a box. If it could fit in a little word box, we'd market it and sell it and <laughs> filthy rich. Um, they have the it factor. And, and I think sometimes that we, we relate the it factor to charisma and charisma can be part of it. Um, most really influential leaders are charismatic in one form or another, but, um, the it factor to me means being able to get people to do what they wanted to do in the first place. And sometimes that's delivering a, uh, you know, go get them speech from the front of the room or, in a timeout or, you know, what, at a beginning of the year meeting, but, but sometimes it's a way you look at a kid or a person that you're, you're wanting. It's a, it's a note that you write and send in the mail after they do something that they didn't get a lot of credit for, but you knew was really important. It's, it's finding those ways to help people help themselves. Mm -hmm. And that there's an it factor involved in that. It's not scaring people. It's not holding a giant carrot up there. It's um, it's sort of a providing a mirror in which a person can look into it and see what they want to see in themselves. And there's some sort of magic in that that looks different. I think coming through every individual person. We, we all do it in our own very unique ways. And so um, that's why there are, I'm looking at my office, there are all these books um, about things like leadership and uh, servant leadership and success. Everybody's looking for that recipe and that recipe changes because we're all different. And our my it factor won't be like yours, but um, that it factor is what makes great leaders great. So in the book, I kind of, it kind of resonated with me. Um, you talked a lot about um, great players that had, you know, pretty severe injuries and um, they, you know, it, it broke their heart and, but they, they continued to lead from the sidelines. They were the first ones to cheer on their teammates and, you know, be there for them and, and that sort of thing. And, and I, I think that that is a, a good example of, of what a great leader is. Um, a lot of times leaders are not the ones right out in the middle of everything. They're, they're leading from behind and, and they, they're the ones that know their roles. 
So that's kind well, of- I think there has to be a willingness to um, lead in the way that's needed, which is not necessarily the way that you wanted. And, yes. and a lot of learning that I used to tell our guys the story of the three trees and uh, just a children's story that I read my kids when they were little, but basically they each end up getting what they wanted, just not in the way that they'd imagined. And uh, every time we had an injury, we would revisit that and say, you know, I know this isn't exactly what this looked like when you were planning it all out, but you got to remember there are a lot of different roads to get to the place you wanted to go. And mm-hmm. maybe there's, God's got a better path in mind. Yeah. Um, General Franks is from a small town in Oklahoma too. He was born in Winniewood, um, and his wife is from down here in Roosevelt. So, um, they are very connected to their small town values. And, um, he continues to say that small towns, um, are where your hand, where a handshake is your word. If you, you shake someone's hand, then that means you're going to do what you have said. So, um, what small town values do you um, still try to live by? Boy, you are absolutely right. They do not leave you. They are they are in your DNA. Um, oh goodness, there are so many, Jill. Um, looking people in the eye uh, when you're having a conversation, um, being early, uh, being on time is ten minutes early. I was taught that early in in my. Uh, you know, if if school started, we were early. If there was parent-teacher conferences, we were early, early to church. Um, um, In the the small town of Hilton, there were, uh, you you knew everybody. You you Mm -hmm. just basically knew everybody. And so um, there was, there was an inherent respect, I think, um, in terms of, uh, I respect you no matter what, Maybe you prove to me later that I should not respect you, but there's an inherent respect. You're a human being created by God. I'm going to respect you. It didn't matter, um, you know, what part of town you lived in, um, uh, what kind of car you drove, what you did for a living. Uh, There was just a a seamless, inherent respect. And uh, I think that was contagious uh, among all of us. Um, Service, gosh, when when something happened, we all did it. I mean, okay, there's a, we need to paint the fire hydrants in the town. All right, you got that block and we got that block and we spread out and that's what we would do. Uh, involvement. And I've often said that I, this is kind of interesting. A couple of summers ago, I was asked at, at a Q&A after speaking engagement, what made you think you could go from coaching high school ball to being the head coach at the University of Oklahoma? And I thought, hmm, never really had it phrased like that before. <laughs> but um what did make me think I could do that? And it was a great question because it it urged me to sort of roll back and see. And it it was a sense of confidence that I gained from growing up in a small town in a place where um, I played basketball and I was good at basketball. Um, I sang in the choir. I was not that good at singing. Um <laughs> I was in student government. I was in the school play. Um, I was in uh, FFA. I was in, I ran track. There was nothing. We did everything. Yeah, you You were involved in everything. Yes. Because there weren't enough people to do it. If you didn't, you were Mm -hmm. involved in everything. So whether you wanted to or not, whether you loved it or not, whether it was your aptitude or not, 
you were involved. And what you learned is that you can get better at anything as you do it. You know, I wasn't ever going to be the best singer in the choir. As I got better at basketball, I could be the best basketball player on the floor. But I was a better singer than I was when I started. Yeah. And that what I walked away from Hilton with was this idea when I went to college that there was nothing I couldn't do. Because whatever it was, I had figured out how to do it. And so there's this um, this sort of sense that of agency, like, okay, I don't know how to do that, but I can learn. Okay, I've never done it, but I can try. And there was this absence of that mysterious fear that comes when you look at a thing and think, oh, I could never do that. And I didn't emerge from that small town uh, with that idea because we did everything. And I just think that's perhaps the greatest gift of all. Yes. Yep. So, um, you know, in our society today, I mean, there's so many distractions and they're coming from every direction. And it's quite different from when we were growing up. Um, I grew up in a very small town too. So um, what you did is you went to the gym and whether you played basketball or not, you, um, you were just in the gym. That's where the activity was. So um, you were always there. And if your parents needed to find you, they knew that you would more than likely be in the gym. So as a leader or in a, in a coach, um, how do you protect your team from all those outside distractions? You know, I don't think you can protect them. I think you teach them how to deal with them. Um, I was never one to say, okay, we're going to put all, we're going to put our cell phones in a box. You can have them when the weekend's over or the road trip's over. Um, I don't, I never thought that did any good. Uh, technology is here. Um, it's going to ding. It's going to ring. It's going to pop up. It's going to do what it does. And if we don't arm young people to know how to deal with it, to have the internal muscles, to be able to say no to a thing and yes to a thing. And I don't know, I'm going to think about that thing. Um, then we're doing them a disservice. We can't act like it's not happening and we can't save them from it. Um, we have to teach them how to use it. Now, I think What's incredibly important is the intentionality that goes into the decision-making process regarding it. Um, and I think that's where there's maybe we're missing a little bit of the opportunity that the distractions of the world offer. We all know that, goodness, Jill, it was so easy if I'm trying to figure out exactly what a word means when I'm writing to go to my phone and Google and mm -hmm. look at synonyms and 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 definitions to get exactly the right word. I can do that in a minute, where if I had to pull down a dictionary and go page by page, it would take me 30 minutes to find one word. In, in many ways, such as that very simple explanation or example, technology is such a positive. And there yeah. with access to learning how to do so many things um, my daughter amazes me. She's in her late 20s. And if there's anything that she doesn't know how to do, she Googles it and teaches herself in yeah. an instant. It's amazing. So there, there's just, there's such an upside. But I think sometimes because we are very aware of the hazards of it, because we know of the debilitating power of distraction, um, 
because we want our young people to be able to focus. We miss all that we could be teaching them about intentionality and about how to grow those muscles of discernment, which are in such dire need in our country today. Instead of just siding with this group or siding with that group, thinking about what you really think or believe and pulling it out. Uh, we don't do enough of that. And we have to, that can be something that withers away, just like a quadricep if you never go up and down stairs. Um, if we're not using those muscles of discernment, they're going to wither away. That's the great uh, harm in my mind of these devices that yeah. that um, we stop thinking for ourselves. We stop um, building those muscles of of decision making, the why and the how and the what and the when. Um, we just allow things to be poured into us. And so I think it's our charge, long-winded answer to say, um, we know distraction is bad. We know outside noise is brutal and can be debilitating. But we also know that we can we can become our own filter for what we want to hear, for what we want to see, for what we want to spend our time. So make those decisions. If we make great decisions about who we follow on social media, mm -hmm. it can be such a positive um, encouragement and inspiration and lift. Um, if it's haphazard, if we let the world decide, it's going to be horrifically distracting. Now, all of that being said, nothing will ever take the place of solitude. We have to learn how to be okay by ourselves with nothing around to watch or even read, look at, or listen to just solitude, because I think that's where our that's where our decision making muscles start to grow. That's where our ability to think and analyze and synthesize and all those things that make us valuable in the mm -hmm. workplace, in the world, and with with one another in our relationships. The ability to do all that is grown in solitude, and so we have to be okay with that. And that's probably the greatest fear of this distracted world that we live in now is that there is no time nobody takes the time to be alone with their thoughts yeah. and that's an important part of development yeah so you know as young people and they're coming into their own ways and they're trying to figure this out what piece of advice would you give them do you um and i i mean that from a very um you can't do you if you don't know you. So really invest in a relationship with yourself. Know what your standards are. Know what hard work is by your definition. Know what integrity is by your definition. Um, know who you are and what you believe in and what you will stand for and what you will not stand for. Because that one relationship supersedes and influences every other relationship in your life. It is the one thing that you have complete and total control over. So develop that, know you, and then do you. Live you, true to your standards. So do you think that's the same advice you would have given someone at the beginning of your career? Mm, hard to say. Um, I think I would have I think at the beginning of my career, it would be more about what you do rather than what you know. I don't think I would have had the 
um, experience necessary to know that if you're not really clear about yourself, you can't, it's really hard to work hard and be selfless with others and commit to a cause outside of yourself and all those things I asked my players to do. Mm -hmm. I, I think that I was lucky in the sense that um, I was raised in a family and in a place um, where those things lined up for me and I had the space to figure out who I was. I knew that, uh, but I don't think it's as easy to do that anymore. And because of, as you mentioned, the distractions and the way the world works, I, I think it's harder and yet more important than ever. So I don't know that I would have been equipped enough to explain it in that way at the beginning, but I think I would have wanted the same end result. Yeah. So I always try to close our podcast by asking our guests the same question. So if you could talk to your 18 year old self, what words of wisdom would you give yourself? The question always makes me laugh because I think I probably wouldn't have listened. Yeah, I know I wouldn't have. <laughs> I would have told myself, but I think maybe, um, I, I, I think don't take things personally. Uh, that piece, and I mentioned it earlier of the four agreements, is uh, such a default mechanism for us uh, to assume that the guy who cuts us off in traffic was was being a jerk. How, how can you do that? I, it was not a bad, it didn't have anything to do with you. It, 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 I think oftentimes if someone, you know, you, you call cons- customer service and someone's short with you, you don't have any idea what their life was like. It's not, it's not, they're not attacking you. Um, just a myriad of little things like that. I think if, if, if you don't, constantly pick those up and put them in a knapsack you're able to travel so much more lightly mm-hmm. and uh if an if if as an 18 year old i had been to able to look past all those little things that don't mean much at the time but they accumulate and you carry them around and eventually it gets really heavy um to be able to just fly right over those and say it's not about that it wasn't about me um i think it would have been a lot easier sometimes yeah so Well, I appreciate your time today, and um, it was an honor to have a conversation with you. So um, I've been a big fan since you you took over. So um, you did great things for women's basketball in the state of Oklahoma and our nation, and it's, it's just been an honor to speak to you. Thank you again to REI Oklahoma for making this podcast possible for nearly 40 years the board, staff, patrons, and supporters of the nonprofit economic development REI Oklahoma have been committed to expanding Oklahoma's economic prosperity, earning the reputation of being one of the most comprehensive economic development organizations in the country. Business lines, training workshops, business consulting, and networking opportunities, as well as technical assistance and even commercial business space are made available to Oklahoma entrepreneurs and small businesses. For low and moderate income individuals and families, down payment and our closing cost assistance is offered. Learn more at reiok.org. On behalf of the four-star leadership with General Tommy Frank's team, 
I'm your host, Dr. Jill Green, and this has been the Core Principles of Leadership with General Tommy Franks podcast. Now it's your turn, podcast listeners. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and let us know what you think of this episode and all our other episodes. Share this podcast with all the leaders and up-and-coming leaders in your circles. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast listening platform. And don't forget to mark your calendars the last Friday of each month for another inspiring episode. So for now, as General Franks always says, go be feisty.